We here at the Making Movies is Hard podcast are very happy that the WGA and the AMTPA have come to an agreement, but the SAG After Strike continues. If you would like to help them, please go to SAG After Foundation's Emergency Financial Assistance Program, SAGAFTRA.foundation forward slash donate, and click the link. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bussell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital DVD and Tubi. But I also have a short film out right now called Parka, which is on Vimeo, which came out a couple weeks ago. I directed it with fellow filmmaker Marcella Cortland. It's like the second time I've co-directed in my life, and it was really fun. And it's on Vimeo, so watch it. We've got very few, few views so far, despite having a wonderful review of the movie. So yeah, give us some love. And I'm Eric Toms, and I'm the producer of the Making Movies is Hard podcast. I'm an actor, writer, and filmmaker whose first feature film, Bakersfield Noir, will be re- released later this year. This week, we welcome literary manager and producer Jason Lubin on the show to talk about how he got started in management, what he looks for in a project and a, and a client, and his process for working with this client. Shout out to the Austin Film Festival. This is where I met Jason at a party. It was really wonderful. And, you know, he, we connected after the festival and he was willing to come on the show. Really, really wonderful guest and looking forward to, for, for people to hear this conversation. After that, we play another round of You're the Expert. But first, Eric, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing very well. I'm very excited because we are recording this on Tuesday, September 26th. And as I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knows, the writer strike is tentatively over. Booyah! Tentatively. Tentatively. Not over yet. Not, we're not out of the woods yet, but so far, as far as we know, with all the information that we've gotten so far, both of the negotiating committees are, are, have put down stipulations as to what the new contracts will be, and people are agreeing that for agreeing on them. It sounds like everything is very favorable for the WGA. The contracts have not been signed yet, so right now the, the picketing and striking has stopped. But writers are not going back to work yet. Now, having said that, I am in SAG after. I'm in the SAG after union. Proud member for over 15 years. And we are still on strike. So I will be picketing later this week along with uh, a bunch of other friends. So, but I mean, this is this is huge. And the really big thing is the fact that the WGA managed to put verbiage together in the new contract regarding AI, which is one of the real big problems that we are facing. How do you stop somebody from putting, uh, you know, a chat GPT bot making a script and then handing it to a writer and saying, here, punch this up or polish this, make sure it doesn't sound weird. And that is something we were fighting to get away from. And so it sounds like, again, we don't know the details, but it sounded like it's it's very healthy for, for the writers. And then now hopefully that sort of verbiage will be able to to be passed on to to the actors as well so there's that that is very exciting as a result of that i have a script that uh, has a director attached i have a couple of producers attached we've been doing everything in the this last god was it been five months how long has it been 10 years how long have we been on strike a long time a long time we've been doing everything we can to get all of our ducks in a row for you know for around this time whenever things start opening up again we've got a production company that's excited about about working with our director so i have been working on rewrites this week just to make sure everything is polished as can be i'm going to be sending it off to a few feature writers 
get their notes back and then hopefully send it off to our director by this weekend. So, uh, and it's been terrific. I found if I can go on this little kind of tangent for a second, I have been writing for a very long time, but I think I found a really good technique for rewriting. And I'm sure there's going to be multiple people listening to this like, well, yeah, dummy, we all do that. But this was new for me. Like normally I open up my document and then I copy it onto a new file and then I just go from top to bottom and I rewrite as I go. But this time what I did is I opened up a blank document and I just copy and pasted like five or six pages at a time. So that way I wasn't looking at a whole hundred pages or 120 pages. I was just looking at those five or six pages and it, I was able to move so much faster and it seemed so much less daunting. So then when I would finish, I would just then highlight it all and then paste it back into the original document, then take the next five, six pages. And I've been going back and forth that way and it's been terrific. Oh, I, I uh, love so it. So you're not creating, you're not creating a new document. You're like working in a separate document and then you're putting it back into the main document. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I'll highlight, control C, the new document, control V, and then when I'm done, uh. control A, and then go back to the original document that's still highlighted, and then just hit control V. Wow. And then it's there. And then I assume at the very end, I'll go through the whole thing and make sure that I didn't miss anything. Wow, that's awesome. I have so many questions. First off, for your feature, congratulations. But uh, is this a new thing that you've written recently, or have you been working on this for a long time? What is this story? I wrote this screenplay in 2012 and it got a little bit of heat at the time I, I put it in the Nichols fellowship and I was a semi-finalist and I had some producers reach out but then and I didn't realize at the time what I should be doing like the fact that I had made it there I should have really put myself out more but my my thought process was I'm I'm semi-finalist in Nichols now I just sit back I cross my arms and I just wait for offers to come rolling in yes. and they did not I did get a few producers which sent me emails that were like, Dear writer, congratulations on your placement to the Nichols Fellowship. But I didn't follow up with anything, so I sent them out, and then that was kind of it, and I really regret doing mm -hmm. that. But I still held on to the script. It was still like one of the best things I'd ever written. And when I signed with my lit manager just right before the lockdown, that was the one that he had liked the best. I pitched him three of my scripts, and he liked this one because it's, in essence, it's two characters in one location. So the way he described one that I read just enter is this the one that you share with me yes I probably best yeah, we're like in the in the house yeah you know yeah, yeah, yeah. and then and like they do, do all those things and it's like a <laughs> cat and mouse game kind of thing mm-hmm yeah. yeah, very much cat and mouse thriller. That was fun. Yeah. Thanks. So we have an actor attached as well. We got a few other people. So when I pitched it to him, he was the one who liked the best. And just as a manager, he said, this one sounds good because it sounds really cheap. Like, oh, well, thank you. You could have said well written or a good script, but you went with we could film it really cheap. So, OK, but yeah, it's uh, it's starting to it's starting to get a little bit of heat again. So now we're we have this nice. team together. So I'm hoping that translates into we make this into a movie and, and your director how did you find was it just a friend of yours or that you you know or is it somebody how did you meet this person so the director i mean i guess i can say her name her name is sylvia colomer she was a filmmaker and she's been working for years and years i met her because a film that i produced by my buddy jeff prather who will be on a future episode of the show oh yes he wrote and directed 
a short called A Mind Cannot Touch, and it's been doing really well in the film festival circuit. And so we went to Cleveland and Cleveland, shout out Paul Sloop. We went to Cleveland and I really did my homework. I checked out everybody that was going to be premiering there. And her film also kind of had two characters in one location, or at least a large portion of act two and act three was two characters in one location. So I thought like, oh, she might be kind of perfect as a director for this piece. And I met her and uh, we hit it off. And so I went, to, I went to go watch her film. It was really well done. And then I recommended her to the show she was interviewed by you guys on the show oh yeah she's great she's fantastic and uh, i sent her the script and she was like yeah i really like this script this sounds really good uh, there's a couple of production companies that are interested in working with me again i think this could work oh, out that's awesome so it's all positive things but as you know and many of our listeners know that means absolutely nothing so far <laughs> it's just oh. a lot of people <laughs> like it and that's nice but we're not filming anytime soon there's no money we're just kind of doing our doing everything in the hopes that this will lead to uh, something. Having a team is huge, you know? Yeah. Like, if you have a team together, especially people with varied backgrounds, you know, who, where your circles don't intersect so much, I think is really great because then the possibility of something happening from any one of the people who are on the team is greater because it's like you don't know the same people and you're not running in the same circles or whatnot. Yeah. I also want to add, <laughs> I remember... When you told me that you were going to film festivals and you say, I'm looking for a director for some projects that I have. And the fact that you said that that was your goal, you went out to do it and then you did it. And now you're back here months, and months later with this like awesome package is like, kudos to you, sir. Very well oh, done. Thanks, buddy. So cool. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you very much. It, it just goes to show that if you have a plan and you and you follow through on it, execution, it, you yeah. know, just just stick with it. You know, just don't expect it's going to happen in a week and then, you know, maybe in a half a year. You'll, got to, you'll have some progress, you know? Oh, you know what? Can I ask your advice? Sure. Okay. So I'm also, we long-time listeners of the podcast know that uh, I'm kind of finishing up my first feature, Bakersfield Noir, as I mentioned earlier. But my next project, I have the next screenplay for the next film that I want to shoot myself. I want to direct it and produce it. I think will cost probably about $100,000 for production. Mm -hmm. In looking at my film, Bakersfield Noir, I am very proud of it. I think it's a great film. Did a really good job. Very proud of the people who helped me with it. I shot it for $1,000. And to be honest, it, it looks like a very low-budget <laughs> film. Right. <laughs> and so there is a side of me that kind of wants to make something that looks really pretty mm. to so, you know, as like, you know, like a music video or something, you know, something that's like oh. two minutes long, you know, three minutes long. That's mm. I you know, would just be like a, a like a CV or resume for me. So mm. if I'm going to someone and they say, well, let's watch Bakersfield Noir, they might watch it and say, well, this looks pretty cheap, man. I don't know if I want to give you one hundred thousand dollars. I say, but I also have this thing that we shot for, you know, a few thousand dollars that looks very, very pretty and polished. Do you think that is just an extra kind of waste of time or do you think that is a viable uh, thought process? And, and have you made anything that looks like that before as a director? Have you directed a short that like looks pretty? ever not really all of the shorts that i have done have been like a hundred bucks 200 bucks something okay. like that like really really cheap I, I will say that at least once if not twice with raising money for movies the investor who put in a large chunk you know watched all my work and was like oh yeah i can see you can make a good movie because of this movie and this movie and they're both you know like i have three that i think are, are look really like professional and well done you know 
So I, I do think that that is helpful. And I don't think you need three, but I think if you just have one thing that's beautiful and polished that you can show somebody, I think it, you know, that can get a lot of buy-in. And then on top of that, you also have your feature, you know, so you can show that you, you committed and done that as well. And you have the experience of telling a story in a longer thing. I think that both of those two things together would be helpful, you know? Okay. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's funny. It's like anti, like what I would normally, when I feel like I would normally answer this question, I think I normally would just say, just, you made a feature, just go make another one. But I feel like, you know, knowing the way that people are and, and especially if you're trying to raise money, it's like people want to see the, the polished candy coated looking sleek thing that they can yeah. be like, they can latch onto and say, Oh, that looks like a real movie that I would see in a theater. Like, you know, and that's probably not true for everybody, but like that's probably true for enough people where having that in your back pocket is is important. But I, I would say, like, don't spend more than a few thousand dollars on it because you can yeah. you can make a short for a few thousand dollars that looks impressive. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say is like I was really obsessed going into my second short film with like having something that looked more dynamic than my first because my first one had like basically two locations. It had like this alternate dimension world and it had this the apartment that we shot in. And I was like, there's two locations. Like, come on. Like, this isn't showing anything interesting. And then my next one, we had, like, this apartment. We had this this exterior. We had this bar. We had all these extra locations, you know. And I felt like I was really excited because I felt like it achieved the goal that I wanted. But I don't think anyone gives a fuck. Like, <laughs> I don't think anyone but me cares. Like, I think if it looks good and it looks, like, polished and has some really great cinematography and good sound design and like is like sleek and all that stuff and has a cool story. Like it, I think it could be in one, one room and people would be equally impressed, you know, as long as it, it is a good story and it, that's, it, that fits for the story. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man, I would say go out and make the short, you know, because it would also be a good exercise for you to like, if you could get a crew of 10 or 15 people together to help you. Cause like making a movie with by yourself, like with like very few people for a thousand dollars is extremely different than like directing a set of 20 people, you know? So yeah, I, I think if like whatever you're planning to do for your feature, right? Like, like let's say you want to make your feature with a 50, 15 person crew. They go yeah. make a short with a 15 person crew. Cause then you will know what it's like to direct a short with a, a movie with a 15 person crew. If you've never done it before, you know, yeah. like I made the alternate or the strange thing with like a 25 person crew. And it was like crazy for me. Yeah. But then like, you know, I did it, I did it one more time for brother with about the same size and we were smaller for the other shorts and then back bigger again, I think for the proof of concept. But I think like having the experience of working with like a team like that and being like, cause it's kind of overwhelming to like be a person like on a set where like all these people have like taken their time from their weekend or multiple days to like yeah. work extremely hard on the thing you originated in your brain that you thought was good enough to be made into a movie and to like, if it's like a lot of pressure in a lot of ways. So I feel like going through that experience at least once is probably helpful. You know, that I want to make things so much harder on myself than even that. <laughs> I thought a music video is really fun. You know, I love Edgar Wright and he came up doing music videos. It's same with like, you mm. know, guys like David Fincher, but I mean, they were doing very, very high end kind of stuff. But do you remember the band, the gorillas? Oh yeah, sure. Do you remember their music video for uh, 19, 2000? What was it called? It's called 19-2000, literally 19-2000. Oh. oh, no, I, so, I didn't look it up. 
It was it was an animated one, and it's all of the gorillas who are who are animated, and they're in a car driving, and it's this insane kind of dystopian future, and they're on these crazy freeways, and like their things are exploding, and cars are chasing them, and I kind of want to do something like that because there is a freeway in Los Angeles, not too far from my house. It's a very very it's a strange freeway because it's very very short. It's only I want to say three or four miles long, and it seemed to be it once upon a time solved a problem of congestion, but I. I think it's since kind of gone out of use. It's not very useful now. So it's almost never used. So I would think like on a, I checked on a Tuesday night at like midnight, it is completely empty. (laughs) And so what I would love to do is I would love to have like, get a couple of cars and then just pack them with cameras and then drive them back and forth on this freeway and come up with some safe, safe music video that we'd be able to shoot using this stuff. Yeah, I would say that to me, and this is just my, I'm, a lot of other people will think differently, but in my yeah. personal opinion, having a short narrative as the proof of concept for another, for a future narrative is important versus a slick music video. Mm-hmm. Like I think people will look at a slick music video and like some people might be like, oh yeah, okay, I can see it. And, but then other people, especially older people who might have money might be mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this doesn't tell me if you can tell a story. This doesn't tell me that we can make, you know, it's like to them, there's, there's a disconnect, right? Yeah. I don't know. That's just my gut. I would, I would say like, yeah, take that freeway and make a cool movie on that freeway. Like, mm-hmm. don't make a, a music video, you know? Well, I would think the, the music video would tell a story. So it wouldn't just be cool looking. It would be, there would be some sort of, like, beginning, middle, and end to it. So yeah. that's my, that's my I, plan. I mean, that's better, but I still feel like a music video and a short film are different. You know, mm-hmm. and I think True. That people will respond to the in a different way based on who they are. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess just my gut would be like, go with a short film. But I'm sure a music video is going to solve a lot of the same issues. But then I would say <laughs> if your movie doesn't have anything that's like the freeway sequence in your movie, then that's probably not as helpful because you want to point to like, oh, like this is like similar to what I'm going to do in my feature. You know, like it doesn't have to be a proof of concept for the feature necessarily. But like like if your movie, let's say you, to- you told me it's like a movie that like has a lot of driving on a freeway as the important crux of the story, then I would probably be more convinced that this idea is a great idea. You know, mm-hmm. because then it's like a one to one that you can show an investor like, oh, yeah, look, we did this whole music video that's like very similar to the big se- the big action set piece in the movie that we want to pull off. And this, this just shows that like where I'm going with it and how we're going to do it. And I think that would be like super like, oh, yeah, wow. OK, I can see it. Oh, that's amazing. All right. You know, mm-hmm. but I think is. <laughs> You can tie whatever you're going to make, whether it be a music video or a short film, to the project you're going to be raising money for, the better. All right. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. I no, yeah, it, of course. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny. I'm talking about short films. Like, I've, I've been wanting to make, like, I'm, I'm getting the itch to make something lately. And I've yeah. been thinking to myself that maybe I will, that maybe I'll make a short film. You know, I have a camera, you know, and, you know, I've got my kids. And I'm thinking, like, man, I should just try. Like, it might be a disaster, but, like, maybe I could just try making a feature starring my two-year-old daughter and see a what feature? that would be a like. A full feature? Oh, no, sorry, not a feature, a short. Oh, okay, <laughs> a short. okay, okay. Whew. Yeah, just a short. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking, like, you know, something short, like two, three minutes, and, you know, sure. some kind of, like, little narrative about her, like, maybe one of her toys is talking to her or something, and she's, like, interacting with the toy, or yeah. it's some sort of supernatural sort of thing, or... Maybe it's cute and silly. Maybe it's, I was like, maybe I could get some fake blood on her. Maybe it'd be like really funny to do a gory <laughs> thing. Like, I don't know. Like, 
Like, let's see there like, it is. what we can the do. The whole time you were explaining this idea of like, at some point there's an alien or something. <laughs> and the, oh, no blood on her face. Yep, that there we go. That's that's the Ulrich that I know and love. Yeah, I was just thinking like, <laughs> what what could we do together that would be really fun? And I asked her if she wanted to be in a movie because she loves uh-huh. movies. And she was like, oh, yeah. And then I tried like a, doing a little thing with her, like just to like see if she would like give a line to ca- to the camera or like give a line on camera, like not looking at the camera. And like, she just is not interested in actually yeah. doing it. So I'm going to keep, you know, she's, she's, she's only like, you know, not even two and a half yet. So I'll, I'll keep, uh, keep seeing if there's something here. I have to have, I have to fin- figure out like what the story would actually be. Yeah. But it, I think it might be a fun exercise for me just to like keep the filmmaking muscle working. And then like, while I'm writing, I could be doing something creative at the same time. You sure. know, that's uh keeping, keeping the muscle alive. Cause I feel like, well, I do want to work to, to making up my next feature, but I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of ways I can do it. That's going to be less disruptive to my life, you know, like yeah. where I could shoot in my town and sleep in my bed every night. And like yeah. maybe only I do it in chunks. Like the feature I'm writing, I, I, I'm writing in a way where you can shoot it in pieces where you don't have to shoot it all at once. Yeah. So I'm thinking about like that too. Like, oh, I could maybe shoot like, you know, just weekends or, or like three day weekends, like, you know, five, three day weekends across like six months, you know? Yeah. Bakersfield Noir, we shot it exactly that way. It was. Oh, yeah. It was over the course of like two years. Yeah. That we shot it. And so like we would shoot like one weekend and then we would take, you know, a couple of months off because my kids were in school or something. And then we would shoot again wow. and come back. The only thing you have to be worried yeah. about is, is haircuts. Yeah. Well, that, that's why I want to do it in chunks because it's, it's it's kind of like a uh, I don't only really want to blow the whole concept because I think the concept's really cool, but it's basically like in segments, sort of like mm-hmm. you know where you 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 could like shoot out a character in like probably three days. Some yeah. some you'd have to keep in longer probably because they have multiple segments. But a lot of it is designed where like you have a character that like exists for like a five ten minute scene and then they don't come back again. You know. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how it works. Or they're in so much makeup because it's a science fiction, of course, that yeah, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't matter about hair, about haircuts or anything because you just you know you're going to be wearing bald caps or whatnot probably. Sure. You know what, Alric, I really I support you doing something with your kids. I think that'd be a lot of fun. You know, the other thing that's good to support is us on Patreon. If you go to www.patreon.com/mmihpodcast, this is the way that you can keep the show alive, keep us going. As you noticed last week and this week, Liz is not here because she's still um, in the in the throes of uh, learning to be a mother of two, which is as someone speaking as learning to be a father of two is very challenging, <laughs> but yeah, so she'll be back. But you know, any bit that you support to the, to the podcast will help us keep the show going, help uh, Liz, Eric and I not quit out of <laughs> exhaustion. Although Eric's on the other side of it. He's, his kids are old. He's not as exhausted as Liz and I are, but uh, I, I feel sleep like in on I the get, weekends. <laughs> I feel like if I don't quit the podcast in the next two years, I'll, I'll this will never die. But yep. like right now in this like two year period, this is the part. This is a time when the show could just completely go away. So I've got to push through and make sure the show doesn't disappear in the next couple of years while my kids are so young. Yeah. But yeah, check us out. We've got bonus episodes and back, not just bonus episodes, but also back episodes. We have everything in the catalog from 300 and, you know, back to one that you can access through being a Patreon member that you can't get on iTunes right now. So go over and check that out. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Jason Lubin.
Well, Jason Lubin, welcome to the show. Can you give us your, like, I don't know, your quick bio of who you are and what you do? Sure. First off, thanks for for having me. Glad to be here. So originally, I'm originally from Michigan, came out to LA about 18 years ago. I went to the University of Southern California, was in the film school there. And after I graduated, I started working at Lionsgate, was there for seven and a half years. Did a little bit of everything, worked as an assistant in the TV department, worked for the CEO as his assistant, and then was a story editor, junior CE on the movie side. Then I went to go work for producer Linda Opes as her head of development. We had a TV deal over at Sony Television, so I worked on a lot. And then worked for her for just over a year and then left to start my own company, which became First Story. And that was October 2018. It's been almost wow. five years now, going really well. Main, most of my business is on the management side, representing writers, directors, though I do have a few projects that I, I don't rep anyone specifically on them, but but am attached as a producer that we're trying to get out there as well. And it's going super well. Uh, you know, Obviously, it's been a, a very turbulent time in the business, but I really kind of enjoy what I do. I think it's a really good fit for kind of my skill set and what I'm interested in. And um, it's been really exciting to kind of see the growth of my my clients from some of them before, you know, anything really major happened for their careers and now are, are kind of really, really getting out there in a real way, which is really exciting. I went to USC as well. So required fight on. Can you, for those of us, me included, I don't even know exactly everything a lit manager does. Would you be able to define that? Or is that like too tall in order for our podcast? <laughs> I mean, I can kind of give you uh, some of the different things. And, and again, I, I can mainly only speak. Uh, there's a couple things that I think are kind of more universal, which is the they tend to have managers tend to have smaller rosters. They're very similar, obviously, to an agent. And kind of some of the differences are they tend to be some smaller rosters. Most, you know, a lot of agencies are obviously kind of the bigger infrastructure and stuff like that, where a lot of managers tend to have kind of less infrastructure, smaller companies tends to be a little bit more creative than an agent would while agents are, are typically kind of out there either soliciting for work or packaging projects for their clients. And then kind of the the other thing is that managers can produce their clients' material where, where agents cannot. And agents are licensed with the something through the state of California. There's some business, you know, the ATA that they license through. Outside of that, I can really only speak for myself in terms of how I run my business and the way I I like to work. My philosophy is is whatever whatever I can do to help my clients succeed and, and accomplish the goals that they've set out to be. So that can be everything from developing their material, helping them come up with ideas, finding IP for them to to adapt, finding them opportunities out in the landscape that they can do, working with their working with their agents, working with their lawyers, kind of being their person in, in all aspects of that. I don't know. I've never worked at I worked at CA for four days in the mailroom. And outside of that, I've never worked in representation. Sometimes that means I ask stupid questions, but I think more often than not, I bring this like kind of just outside mindset to it. And advice that I got from the CEO of Lionsgate actually was like, the worst reason to do something is because that's the way it's always been done. And not having worked at, at a management company or an agency really before, I'm not tied to, oh, this is the way managers are supposed to act, or this is the way agents are supposed to do things. And I'm kind of like, well, 
I'm going to do what seems to me make sense for my clients and, and for the way that the industry is, is now. I have to hear about CAA for four days in the mail room. Like what, what happened there? Was that just like you did it and you hated it or was it? No, it was a, it? it was a, it was attempt to hire a position. Uh, okay. It was like through a temp agency and you know, I just didn't make the cut. I, I okay. couldn't deliver mail. So, so take, <laughs> take that with you. What it says about my, me as, as you will. The best compliment to you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so when like you, you had all this time at Lionsgate and then you were the head of production development, you know, with Linda Ops, but like, did you always know that you wanted to go into management or was that something that you kind of discovered like while at Lionsgate or like actually after that? Or like, when did that kind of, honestly, come? I didn't, didn't know I wanted to be a manager until after I'd become a manager, to be honest. <laughs> when I, you know, I kind of, kind of over time as has, has evolved a little bit. What, I wanted to do, you know, I, I came to USC to be a director, realized I wasn't director, wanted to be a producer. As I was kind of a studio executive, you know, working at Lionsgate, I, that kind of was a little bit of, of the mindset. It's like, oh, maybe I'll go be the president of production or, or something at, at a studio. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of similarities between studio executive and, and producer. And, and so that still was kind of the intention. I really, what I did was I made the decision to go work on for myself and start my own company. And in talking with some other managers who had kind of made this transition, they all loved it. And, and the selling point was you can still produce, you can still produce. And, and even some accomplished kind of independent producers who were much older than me were like, if I started now, I would go into kind of management because just the the deals, you know, not a lot of kind of studio deals for, you know, non-writing producers and stuff like that were kind of going away. And if you look at kind of the independent producer marketplace, I feel a lot of the people who would be independent producers 20 years ago are now managers. Like that's what they do. Mm. And so originally when I started the company, it was going to be a little bit more of a means to an end. And I was like, oh, I'll just rep a few people. I'll make all this money from those people and really grow the producing side of, of the business. And once I started doing it, I kind of really fell in love with with the management side and and I realized I was really good at it. And the things I'm producing and the things and the people I manage, the, the work is very similar between the two, except you're just betting on on the people as opposed to the project specifically. So I've really, I mean, these three projects, I've kind of, uh, I'm just very passionate about these ideas and and the team that that we have around it. And so I, all three of them were from, I think the first like six months or one year of the company. And so it's really just about getting those across the finish line. And then, you know, maybe there'll be a, a, a realignment of, of some other producing projects, but also part of the, the intention of management is, is maybe you'll do some producing with the clients that, that you have, but yeah, it's, it's kind of been an evolution over time, kind of in the first year or two, I really was like, Oh, there's a lot of opportunity with the clients that I have to get them to where, where I want to put them, or maybe there's an idea I have that I can, you know, have one of them develop or et cetera, et cetera. And so that's been really exciting. I worked at Sundance for a few years and I always think about management a little bit like artist support, like it's a little bit holistic. There's no real boundaries and it's just trying to almost like life coach professionally, right? Look at the, I don't know. I hope that doesn't insult you in any way, but to, um, to kind of look at the whole, what would you say is 
what sets apart for Story Entertainment, your company? Like, what was the mission statement or how did you designate being different than any other company? Or was that, again, kind of something that you grew into as you learned to love management? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I I don't think I started the company with the like, here's how we're different. I think I'm amazing, (laughs) you know, or uh, something I do say a lot, which I think is something my dad says that I should always say. He's like, regardless of if it's true, you say like, I'm going to work harder than anyone else. You know, he he was saying it like as applying for jobs. It's like, it's like, tell your, you know, if you're interviewing for a job, tell them like, I'm going to work harder than any other employee that you you have. And he, he made joke because like the person that told him this was like, he doesn't work harder than everyone, but like it helped him get the job. And so I do, I mean, I do believe in that mindset. And like I said, if, if you, you know, hear what I said earlier, which is like, I do whatever, whatever I need to do to help clients forward. I never go like, that's not my job. I might say, I don't have the necessary skill set to do what we need to do. And so we need to bring in someone who, you know, whether it's a lawyer or whoever to help guide us in, in that thing. And I'm always helpful with clients to do that. So like I've had clients ask me like, who, who's a good accountant or who's, you know, obviously lawyers and, and agents. And so I think that mentality is very much a consistent thing for me, which is, again, not being tied, being entrepreneurial, not being tied to to a certain way of doing things, never saying that's I'm not going to do that. Or, or you know, again, I, I might do not want to do something because I think there's a downside to it or there's a better way to go about it. But I, th- I think like I'm always trying to find kind of unique ways of of doing, you know, doing business, stuff like that. And so like, I mean, look at right the time that we're in right now, right? With Strike. July 2023. July 2023. <laughs> Hopefully when this airs, it'll be over. But, you know, finding like I, I've been talking with a company about video game writing or mm. writing a graphic novel and stuff like that. Right. So like those things, you know, we've run it by the guild, the guild, it, it's fine to, to be writing that during the strike, but maybe that's something that other reps might not be chasing or looking into. Not that they're opposed to their clients doing, doing that, but there's just not something that they're actively doing. And so I think that's kind of the, the most important thing about what I, how I run my business, how I operate as a manager is being creative, which is, how we find opportunities, how we put projects together, being very collaborative in a way that's like betting on a piece of IP or betting on a producer that, yeah, isn't the name brand of a, you know, churnin or whoever. But if if we really put in the effort and the energy into this, we can make something happen. So it seems pretty daunting to me to like, you know, be working for other companies and then start your own company. Like, what, what were some of the ways that you were able to do that? Did you already have like some like choice clients lined up that you started the company while you rep them? Or did you have to start the company and then like immediately search for clients? And then how did you find those people? And like, what what about that? Those relationships allowed the company to exist? I, I didn't have I didn't have any clients lined up. I really did not prepare for this. And, and looking back, <laughs> I've done it again. I probably would have. <laughs> but like I said, it kind of it kind of came together fairly quickly. And I kind of was like, I was like, I need to like quit this job. And I had some other life things that were happening. And I was like, I kind of need to get through this and then kind of figure out what's what's going on. So my first two clients I signed, I went to an unrep showcase at UCB. And 
it was they they took like you know people part of the UCB. I think it was like their sketch writing teams who didn't have representation, and they did like scenes from pilots that they had written. And I went to this, and there were four of them that I really responded to in the room, requested their material, met with three of them, and ended up signing two of them, who became you know my first two clients that are still on my roster. And then so that was just the start. And then there were a few people I knew previously. There were like USC people referrals. You know, again, similarly to the entrepreneurial mindset, getting scrappy with who who I'm chasing and and kind of how I find people. I kind of really like. I mean, now I'm at a point in my career where like I would love to chase maybe some more mid level people, but you know, for a long time it was kind of like I got really excited about repping people who are just at the cusp of like maybe they're a writer's assistant, maybe they've, you know, taken out a spec or, you know, have like an indie producer on it or something like that. And they're just need that person to kind of push them over the edge. I think that's just kind of, and then we've kind of grown together. And I think that's also a thing that's really interesting and exciting is, is, you know, that first client, she had never been staffed before, wanted to get an agent, got her an agent, she got staffed and now she's a supervising producer on a show. And so that trajectory is really exciting to kind of, she was betting on me as as much as I was betting on her in the beginning. And now we're at a point where like, we're both more established. We both kind of gotten to a point where, you know, we have, we have connections, we have a name for ourselves that now we're just kind of building on top of that. But no, I mean, I, I really did just kind of, I mean, I had savings, which was really important. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I started this company, kind of the thought process was I'm, I think I'm at the right point in my life and career for this, where I have experience, I have relationships in town that I can make something out of that, but I'm also not too far in my life that the, you know, I didn't have a mortgage at the time. I didn't, you know, didn't have kids. I did nothing that was kind of like, oh, I can work my ass off for a few years making no money. I can do that. And, and so it kind of was a really good, good time. And I kind of got a little lucky with, I kind of became a manager before everybody became a manager before it was cool. <laughs> and so I got a little bit of a head start in kind of establishing myself and, and, and getting some great people before, before a lot of people kind of moved into this, but, and then COVID happened and I kind of made the most out of COVID or made the most out of quarantine. And this, you know, I was very fortunate that I had the, you know, you know, financial support and was healthy to be able to kind of just work 14 hours a day. And, you know, really come out of the pandemic with a lot of clients who were, had been read at a lot of places, a couple more that got staffed on shows. And it, what's, 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 I don't know, interesting, but like kind of this business is stuff that's happening. Well, not right now, right now, but like stuff that's happening in 2023 is out of kind of meetings and things they've kind of developed or, or set in 2021 and 2022. And so you're kind of building, you're building the future, the, the harder you work. And so I really used 2019 and 2020 to really set myself up for 2021 and 2022. And it really paid off. I know you didn't mention contests and your building of your slate, but it's something that comes up in our show quite a lot that, you know, for emerging writers or mid-career writers, is it worth it for, was it worth it for them to submit? If they're unrepped, does it help them get representation in any way, management, agency, whatever? Is it something that you track or is it something that that is not even in your your purview? I do track kind of the major competitions. I read for a couple of them. I'm a reader for AFF. 
and Big Break. And I've read for for a couple other ones kind of on an intermittent basis and have good relationships with like a lot of the major players in in the that writer ecosystem. Yeah, I, I think I think you I think that can be helpful. And I do advise people to certainly look into doing contests. I look at all these things as creating opportunities. And so all of it is out of your 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 goal from all these things is to be read or be put in a position to be read by people who can make things happen for you, whether that's a producer, whether that's for a rep. And it's no guarantee. And I think some people were like, well, I won this and I nothing happened. And I was like, well, that's not how it works. But if you win a competition, there's probably a, a, a fairly high likelihood of of the more respectable competitions. There's a higher likelihood that like people do request your script and read it. So again, it's like it's like you have to kind of weigh what your financials are, what your you know time commitment and stuff like that. Whether it's like going to an AFF or or anything like that, you know your your all that to like decide how are you best going to use that for to capitalize on those opportunities. And then something someone else said at AFF on a panel I was I was on last year that I actually thought was really interesting was if you do well in these competitions, you know, definitely if you win, if you're a finalist, depending on, on how they how they structure it, they the the competition or the festival has a vested interest in your success because it proves that winning the competition leads to opportunities. So if you win a major competition, build a relationship with the people who are running that competition. Most of these, certainly the bigger ones, I know Big Break and Coverfly and AFF have kind of professional liaisons or people who part of their job is to work with kind of the Hollywood people that are, are either reading or or maybe not even reading, just who might be interested in, in, in reading the scripts of who wins. And so if you build a relationship with those people and you win the competition, they might put you up for for meetings and stuff like that. And I've done some of those meetings in the past with, with several of these competitions. Have I signed someone off of that? I, I don't know if I specifically have signed people directly off of a competition. I don't think so. But like there was one writer who won AFF and I was talking and because of that, I reached out to her about maybe doing kind of partnering with her on a, a piece of IP that I was interested in doing. Didn't end up working out for, for various reasons, but but like that was an opportunity that that certainly probably would not have happened if if she hadn't won that competition. So I, I, I certainly think there are there's benefits and it's kind of on you to do some of the research of. What's the track record? How many of the people who win these competitions go on to get repped or set up with producers, et cetera, et cetera? Are there other festivals or contests or events or anything that you go to every year in addition to the ones you mentioned like AAF and, and Big Break? I mean, those are the other, I mean, I haven't, I mean, I've done Sundance a couple times. I, I, I'm not heavy in the director space. I mean, I have a couple people, but that's, 
that's less of who I'm chasing right now. And I feel like a lot of like film festival per se are, are more director driven than writer driven mm. with, I think AFF being kind of the exception to that, which is, is why I really like going to that one uh, again, not, a, not opposed to it. And, and, you know, I'm, that's no judgment on, on any other competitions or festivals. It's just a, as someone building up their business and, and, you know, is responsible for the payment of everything is just being kind of smart of just like where what's the best use of my my time and money to to do that how quickly do people have to capture your attention in a script is it five pages is it 10 pages what how much latitude are you able to give with the busy reading schedule you have if it's a crappy first five pages but you have a mutual friend you give them five more five you know like (laughs) is there kind of a point system that encourages a longer investment in a script (laughs) no i mean i i would say i tend to read unless it's like god awful i tend to read 20 pages of of almost everything that i take on i don't take on solicited submissions so so almost everything that's coming to me is either someone that i met or through a referral or, or or something i reached out about but i usually read 20 pages so in theory you have 20 pages to to do something but i'm not like most things yeah in a few pages you you kind of know what it's going to be but yeah sometimes you know but after five pages i think it's it's going to be a pass and then i get hooked on it in page 12 and finish the script and you know it's it's who knows? I mean, obviously, the quicker, the stronger your first. I mean, your first five pages are just hugely important. Like, there's no denying that. But there's no kind of, I don't have kind of a checklist or anything of that. It's really, and I've been talking with my assistant a lot, you know, because they're doing coverage and kind of talking about what, like, what's important to me and kind of what really, and for me, it's always like, I can't teach I can fix structure. I can fix, you know, it's definitely spelling errors or just like all the things that are kind of more minor, whatever things I can go in and do the work with the writer to, to make it better. I can't make them exciting. Like like that. I just don't have, I just don't think that's my job. And that's just not my, my skill set to go in and be like, you know, let's make you a good writer. And so really what I'm looking for in these pages is, it's a good read. It's a fun read or, you know, it's a strong read for compelling read, I guess is the best word. Compelling read. And within what they write, they have something to say. And all the rest of it is like, you know, if there's smaller things we can fix. And if uh, if the idea is so-so, I can give them a good idea, but I can't make them a great writer. When someone comes your way, either through a referral or somebody that you just see, you know, like out from one of those contests or however else you, you meet or get engaged with different material or whatever, like what makes you want to meet with somebody and like have that conversation about potentially repping them? Like what what is it that you're looking for that uh, that's different than, you know, every other script or even movie you see or whatever? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's a voice. It's 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 something fresh and voicey in the genre that they write. And I think something I, I said before was, would I hire this writer to write an idea in this space. So like if, if it's an action movie I'm reading and I have an action idea, would I hire this writer to write that? I think that's kind of the basic question that I'm trying to answer because I've got to convince someone else to say yes to that, right? And so that's, I think, kind of the way I'm looking at it is 
does this, is this writer bring, you know, you know, whether it's a Shane Black or whatever, right? Shane Black, you know, say Shane Black, you kind of have a sense of style, what, what that script would look like, right? Depending on whatever the idea is, you kind of get a sense of that. And so you go out and, and sell Shane Black as it's a Shane Black, you know, voice, whatever for, you know, whether it's staffing for a piece of IP or, or whatever. And so I'm kind of looking for someone who's bringing kind of, are they hilarious and they're a comedy writer? Are they scary and, and in the horror genre, are they kind of that fun action vibe and, and trying to put them up for that kind of stuff? I've got a guy who's kind of like Taylor Sheridan-esque. So it's kind of that kind of muscular Americana to his writing. That's it's it just there's a there's a voice to it. And there's a there's just a style to that that I can go out and sell. I read some things that are very competent, but I'm like, I, I, like, I don't know how to sell this person. I don't know what who they are, like what they are as a writer. And and so those are the ones that I tend to pass on very easily. And those are the things that I think I get just bored with as I as I read them versus the the other ones I'm I'm like, I'm in and my gears are turning and I'm like, oh, this idea would be great for them. Oh, I can't wait to introduce them to this producer. They'd be great for staffing on this show. And that's that mindset. That's what gets me excited about working with people. I know we're harping on this a little bit, so I don't mean to grill you, but (laughs) we had a manager on like a year ago. And he said something that struck me. He said that when he brings a client into his his slate or his portfolio or whatever, he's casting a dinner party. And it's, I think, charm and magnetism and charisma is a big part of why he brings people into his business. I know unconscious bias is there, whether we whether we acknowledge it or not. But it sounds like you really are looking at material first. Would do you have any sort of response to his strategy? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say part of it is like a lot of it's personal choice, right? You're you're running. It's a very personal roster. Like I also it's like I say it's like I have to love my writers because like I I know because like I've had a couple clients write some stuff that I don't like and it is so hard. It's so hard to sell stuff I love. Yeah. Let alone something that I don't even think is good, right? So so I think whatever whatever moves you and whatever makes you feel like you're in a position to call up an exec and be like this person's fucking awesome, right? Like if you can whatever gets you to do that is worth it, right? Does their personality and how they are in a room impact my decision to rep them? Absolutely. I mean, you're, I wouldn't say I'm casting a dinner party, but I'm certainly looking at the full package when, when considering is this someone I want to put on my roster. And that can be everything, which I I think maybe some good advice. And and I've said this a couple of times before, like one of the things that drives me personally nuts, and I know other, other managers might be okay with that. And at the end of the day, I truly believe you as a creator need, like if this is your life and your career and you need to be happy with it. But when I ask someone what they write and they say everything to me, it it drives me nuts because <laughs> I'm like that, that to me tells me you write nothing because no one's out there being like, I need a writer. I need a writer. And just who up, oh, I'm a writer. Great. You're hired. <laughs> no, one's, no one's out there doing that. You're looking, you're looking to hire the right person. 
And so that is on the page. That is your background. That is how you present yourself. Certainly when you're staffing on a show, a lot of, there are plenty of showrunners that look at like, do I want to spend 10 hours a day with this person five days a week? So yeah, if you are a miserable person or you're mean or like you're boring, like on our first meeting, like, yeah, that's certainly going to impact my decision, but I, I like, I, I think I, I think I am because I certainly have met people and I love them in the meeting, right? It's like someone who maybe I met the first time for whatever reason and we're talking with them, really enjoyed them. They were great personal. And then you read their material like, oh, damn, <laughs> I can't write, you know? And that's always really disappointing to me because like if, if they could, oh, it's the full package because it's like you have an incredible backstory. You're, you're lovely to talk to. I could put you, you know, your personal put, you know, you're going to go and wow everyone in, in meetings and stuff. Just the material is not there to back it up. And so it's going to be really hard for me. Like I'm not going to be able to take out this material because people are going to read it and be like pass because they're not going to set the general. I guess I could, you know, try to force the meeting or whatever, but if it's not good on the page, it's not good on the page. So I, I think, and like I do, you know, I'll do like generals and stuff and some of these things where they like ask for advice on, on people. And I will say that like, if your energy, like, I, like if, if I'm pulling teeth in a, in a meeting with you, I'm not, I don't want to work with that person, right? Who do we want to work with? We want to work with people that we enjoy working with. So if you are, and I would say that my clients who, you know, my, this first client that's had an amazing trajectory, she's wonderful. People love her and everyone who works with her can't stop saying amazing things about her. She's a really great writer too, but the fact that she is a wonderful, amazing person, of course, is having an impact on, on her career because they're going to want her in a room. They're going to recommend her for other opportunities. You're just like, it's, this is a long slog of a business. It's a lot of time that you're, you're collaborating, working with people. And so you're going to want to work with people that you're excited about. So, so you mentioned earlier that like, it was really tough when a writer that you manage writes something that you don't like. How do you manage that? Do you have a conversation and, and how does that conversation go? Or do you kind of just like let it go and move on to the next project? It depends. That's partly why I like being involved from kind of the beginning of, of the writing process. Like I've had a couple of clients that like, they just send me scripts and it's always like, I, I just don't like that because it's like, I think it's a lot harder when it exists as opposed to <laughs> when it's just like an idea and, and not even to say, don't write that, but even like, what if we did it this way? Or what if it was, you know, what, what if this was the kind of the central conceit or driver to, to the idea? I mean, kind of guide it, whether it's for kind of the industry at large or, or just to make it, you know, a stronger idea. You talked about getting to a stronger place or, you know, are you trying to get it to a more commercial place? Is that the, is that kind of, could we switch out that word? Or are you thinking that you are shaping the art to be of a higher quality? Like, how are you looking at your feedback? From kind of the initial phase or kind of anytime you get feedback anytime, because I understand that obviously, you know, what sells and obviously, you know how to pitch. And so I'm just curious, is your primary objective to sell or is your primary objective 
something a little bit more squishy about art and the quality of art. I mean, I would say I don't think those are as mutually exclusive uh, and not to say that's your point, but like I, I truly believe the better the material, the more sellable it's going to be. And I also very much look at what I'm doing with kind of the mindset of, yes, I'd love to sell every piece of material by clients that I take out, but that's, not actually, I think usually my kind of first objective. My first objective is I want people to read my clients and go, this is a really talented writer that I want to work with. Mm-hmm. And and that both goes from sending these out as samples for staffing or to be considered for adaptations IP or whatever, but also just generally most of the time, like the most, one of the most common, I think, responses I get is this piece is a pass, but I'll meet with the writer or enjoyed it, but it's a pass. And like, you know, maybe that's kind of bullshit responses, but, (laughs) but I truly think a lot of people, it's like, look, this is a hard sell. This is not what we're looking for now, but really like the writing would love to meet with them. So I, I think just making this the best material it can be is the number one most important job that I have. Second most important job they have is is kind of helping the writer achieve their vision. And so I do say this, like it is like I, I, I don't give written notes to my clients. Like I get on a phone call with them and we'll like go through it because I think it's a conversation. It's the kind of like, what, what was, what are you trying to do here? What is, and this is especially important for clients that have, when the material is very personal or is certainly with, with diverse clients and, and people, you know, minority clients that like, I'm not part of the, it's certainly, you know, if it's, a, if it's about a woman, I'm not a woman or, or whatever, you know, if, if it's something like that, like I don't want to put my, you know, push it into a direction that, that the writer is not trying to do, but I'm trying to bring. And so I, I've had these conversations like, look, I'm not trying to change what your intention is or what your kind of theme or vision or whatever it is. But that's not, this arc isn't tracking or this, you know, it's not structured properly or this character is this, I just don't get it. I, it's not clear on the page. And so how do we get it clear on the page? But in terms of kind of the, the commercial conversation, that's why it's like when I can get involved in it from the very beginning, I think that's important when we're kind of initially discussing what this is, because it might be something like, what are people looking for? Or, you know, is is it like and I like I'll have a grid of like all the meetings I go on and what execs and producers are looking for. And sometimes I'm discussing with clients like this is I've, I've heard people are looking for this. So you have anything in, that's an idea in that, you know, bucket, like let's talk about it. But certainly like we talked about some things like can we make this contemporary? Can we make this, uh, you know, maybe it's not, you know, can we lean into a little bit more of the sci-fi? Can we make it maybe lower budget or bigger budget? Or those, I think, are the conversations that that might be like, how can we fine tune this in a way to make it commercial? But I, I think I also tend to sign people who are generally more commercial in their sensibility. So it's, it's less of a, that's, you know, I'm not, people aren't bringing me their like $1 million, not never, but like usually aren't bringing me their $1 million, like indie darling script. Cause like, that's just not me. And that's not who I tend to sign. And so 
the people that I sign are kind of more interested in doing kind of the, not necessarily huge, big budget, but like, you know, tend to be writing on things that are, are a little bit more commercial. So I have to ask this question because everyone listening to this is thinking this. What advice or recommendation do you have for unrep writers or directors to, to find representation? Like, what do you think is like the strongest, best strategy for, for people who aren't signed, who want to be signed, who are just out there, like, you know, writing their stuff, making their work, but just don't, never have had that had that conversation happen yet? I mean, I, I think it's just meet people. And I think the mistake, I don't know if a mistake, but I think this is the, the, the wrong mindset a lot of people take is they're so focused on finding a rep that they're all about finding a rep. Like, and they're, 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 they're reaching out to me. They're reaching out to like other managers like me or, or agents, whatever. That's it. Rather than just meeting as many people as you can, it can be other writers. It can be assistants. It can be indie producers. It can be anyone who has a connection to anyone in the business. I'm a big LinkedIn user. So use those second, third connections. You know, I obviously went to USC. There's tons of, of, of people in the business that went to USC. There are people in this business from most universities. And so if you went to college and you should be reaching out to whoever from, from your, you know, if you went to a school where there's only two of them, they're probably not reached out to a lot from alumni of their university. So you're really special when that happens. If you went to some, a place like USC, there are a lot of us out here. So you'd be a little targeted with, with that approach, you know, who are kind of maybe that more entry level people in the business that might be, that are still developing their own network and, and very interested in meeting a lot of people. If your work is really good, I like not to say you should, you, you, you can, it just will happen. Like you do need to be pushing it out there. But if your material is good, people want to share it because good material is currency in this town. And so I'm looking for people to represent, but like, you know, I'm looking for people to represent because then I can use that material to go sell it to buyers or get them staffed on shows, et cetera, et cetera. Right. When I was an executive or, or, you know, working for a producer, Good material was obviously good for my boss, but also good material might help other managers or like then they owe me something. Or if you're an assistant, you're trying to get promoted. So if you can find a great piece of material to give your boss, that looks good for them. So I, I, I think if you if you've got the if you've got the talent and your material, you know, is speaks for your speaks for itself then whoever you're meeting, people are going to want to, to, to share it and, and recommend you if you're a good person and people like you, et cetera, et cetera. So I think just whether it's going to AFF, whether it's the kind of being on Twitter or threads or Facebook, whatever. I mean, like one of my clients, she's like all over social. Like she was at AFF and like someone came over, asked her for advice and I was like, oh, how do you know her? She's like, never met her before. We're on the same Facebook writers group. And so mm. it, you'd be surprised <laughs> how many people, uh, one of some of my best friends, they, they, they met on Twitter and he was best man at his wedding and he met his wife like through that connection. So it's like, it's going to happen off of, off of the social media. So I think it's it's doing a little bit of everything and just meeting more people and then building those relationships. And when the, the time comes, if people are really responding well to your work, 
then it's maybe an ask, Hey, you know, do you know anyone or, you know, people who are maybe a little more tapped into the community than others. I know we only have six minutes left, so we would love to take this final round in kind of an, a rapid fire way. Well, just, 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 just to propose another option, Liz, because we haven't talked about the strike at all. And I feel like we've talked to lots of writers and directors about the strike. Let's, let's just do one last question about the strike then. Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Do you want to tee it up? Sure. Yeah. So basically then I guess, Jason, what, what is your perspective on the strike? And, and is there any world in your mind where you can see this from the producer side or like, like where is your head at with this whole strike thing? Well, I would, I'd obviously like I'm out there picketing. I'm, I'm fully supportive of the writers and the actors and in generally people who are making, you know, a lot less money than the millions and millions of dollars that, that the heads of, of the studios are making. I, I understand kind of the, I think there are obviously bigger issues with, you know, we're in a time of transition in the business, right? Obviously tech is, is playing a big role. You know, linear TV is, is, is dying and, you know, the switch to streaming, blah, 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 blah. So I, I understand the concerns of the studios or, or, you know, in terms of like, how are they capitalizing on, how are they going to capitalize on, on kind of the content to, to make money and, and be profitable. And I, I would think the vast majority of writers and actors would agree with me to say, like, we want the studios to be profitable. Like there's, we want our partners to be profitable in all of this. It's good for the business. It's good for, it's good for our friends who are executives and, and work at these places. So I, I think there is certainly something to be said in terms of like, how, how do our deals structured in a way that work for everybody, right? Like, is there a reason why the the proposals that the WGA has proposed not work for the studios? However, I don't really understand like why they can't just make a deal. I think like I, I just think like from a I don't understand how it's more profitable to not make content for months and months and months than to give writers 50 million, 100 million, whatever it is that it's going to be extra a year. It, it seems like millions and billions of dollars are being made. And if the writers and the actors are asking for an extra $500 million a year, that, that there's probably a way for that to exist and, and still be profitable, these companies. But, you know, I'm not in the room. So, I you know, and I'm not, I don't, I don't work at a studio. I'm not, you know, a finance guy that's, that's looking at their business model in a way of like, why that is real issues. But I, I have, I think I have like a general issue with, I mean, this is kind of a broader economy issue as in, in kind of the Wall Streetization of the business, which is, short term is hugely important versus long term, which which just makes sense. It's like if streaming like because also they're like, well, streaming doesn't make money. It's like, well, Netflix makes money. So clearly streaming has the ability <laughs> to be profitable. So the issue is you're charging $7.99 a month to gain market share. And it's we've seen it with Uber, we've seen it with these other companies, which is they've they've artificially lowered the costs of things. And like, we just got used to, yeah, a taxi for $10 to go anywhere in LA. And now when we realize, oh, that's not what the cost to go to these places are. And now it's $50 or whatever. And everyone's complaining about it. And I think there's some similar things with, with this streaming, which is Disney plus should not cost $7.99 a month. What you're getting should cost $15 or whatever it is. And I think that's, 
and I've argued with people like I had a buddy who reached out to me who works at Disney and, and he was like, no one like streaming's losing all this money. And I was like, well, it shouldn't be my, like my client shouldn't have to suffer because you guys are, are making the loss leader decision to keep your, your costs low. Right. Like, yeah, like it's, that's, it's like, yeah, it's just not, that's just not how that's not fair in any sense. And, and now if you want to have some kind of revenue share, give stock to people where it's like, we're, we're investing in it. Like, and I, I think, you know, there, there was like an interest, I think the SAG at, like offered some kind of like revenue sharing thing where it was like, maybe that's the way, right. Is align interests. And, and I think that's the best way to do it is the more we can align our interests where when the studios make money, we make money or, you know, the, 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 the talent makes money. That's, that's great. But you can't, you can't, unless you're going to give the billions of dollars, once you get all that market share and then you're, you know, up the price back to all the actors been like, thanks for, you know, taking a little <laughs> less up front, you know, having more back end, but like you've cut more and more back end and now you want to cut the front end too. And, and that just doesn't seem, seem fair for, for the town. Yeah. I'm glad we asked that. Can you tell people how they could support you, whether it's leave you alone or follow <laughs> you on Twitter or <laughs> buy you uh, lunch? Yeah. Follow me, follow me on, on, on Twitter. I think I'm, I probably should have known all my socials. I think it's First Story <laughs> and you should be able to find me either Jason Lubin or First Story Entertainment. I'm on Instagram company. Follow me on company on Instagram. I think I have First Story Ent on, on Twitter and then on Threads is the new thing. Ooh. I think it's just Jason Lubin. You can follow me there. And no, I mean, if you want to hire writers, you are, well, right, nothing right now, but post- well, when this airs and the strike is over, feel free to reach out. But like I said, I, I tend not to take unsolicited. So if you, I take referrals. So if someone I know can recommend you, I'm always interested in, in taking a look at great people, but I, but don't just send me like unsolicited query letters. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Alric, what did you what did you remember from your talk with Jason Lubin? Jason is wonderful. It was really fun to kind of hear his whole process and his whole pathway to being a manager. And, you know, he talked a little bit about his producing and like how he, you know, has aspirations of producing, but that he just really loves doing the work that he does and, you know, setting deals up and, and, and getting his clients work. And that whole side of the business is just something that he really finds engaging and fun. You know, so it was just really cool to hear about his process, why he likes it so much. And then a little bit about, you know, how he finds his talent, what what he encourages talent, his, his, his artists to do in order to get work and like the way they operate. He talked a little bit about, I think we asked him the question that we've talked to other little managers about, like, you know, is it more important to like be a good party member or like a be a good socializer? Or is it better to be, to have great work? You know, and then he gave an interesting answer to that question. But yeah, it was a really fun, fun conversation. I can't wait to hear what you think of it, Eric. Well, it's funny because I have actually spoken with Jason before because I have pitched to him. Ah. 
because I am a I'm a member of an organization, and so we uh, they set up pitches for for writers and actors like myself, and so uh, he and I have actually spoken a couple of times before, and he's he's a very nice man. Nice. That way here, he's a very nice man. Now, without further delay, Alric, are you ready for You're the Expert? Yes. Hit me. What do you got? For those of you who don't know, this is a segment that I, Eric Toms, invented for Alric and Liz, because as far as I'm concerned, they have made films. They are experts. So many times as independent filmmakers, we're always looking to other people to answer our questions. And it's like, you probably know a lot more than you think. So I challenge Alric and Liz every once in a while here with a question. And here is your question, Mr. Alric Purcell. What are some boundaries I should be aware of as a filmmaker when I reach out to producers, writers, or actors that I don't personally know? Yeah, this is a really good question because I think that's something that you can only learn after writing many, many cold emails and interacting with many people. I think the the biggest thing that I learned, I can't remember where I learned this, but it's like, don't, don't just like explode with everything in one email. Like, don't just like you know, put all your, your whole heart and the soul and everything into one. Cause it's like, it's super overwhelming, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like you don't want to like scare this person away or like freak them out or like give them a reason to instantly delete your email. Because like, you know, especially if you're a producer or, you know, I think mostly for producer, it's like you, you probably get so many pitches. You probably see a lot of press releases. You get a lot of information being sent to you, you know, um, about movies. And so it's very easy to like, you know, it all kind of feel the same and be like, like I just don't want to look at it. <laughs> so I would say, like, be very brief, like as brief as you can be in your first, you know, reach out is great. I would not make the, the ask that you want, like it, whatever you're looking to, to do, if it's, if it's just like, let's say you want to meet me for this person with co- for coffee, right? If you want to pick their brain and learn more about them, right? Just to help you as a career. That's a very simple, nice, wonderful thing. I probably wouldn't make that request in the first email. Like you first want to just like get to know them, introduce who you are, say, this is what I'm doing. I saw this that you did that I thought was similar or whatever. Like, I really like that. You know, I think a compliment is always nice, you know, as long as it's genuine and just say, Hey, I I look, you know, look forward to hearing from you and just make it a super easy ask. Like, I'd love to, to, to hear what you think of this, or I'm working on this. Do you have any insight? Like asking questions that are simple and easy and quick and like not like super detailed is probably the better way to go. And like not overdoing it. Like, I would love to meet for coffee. Are you free Wednesday at 12 p.m. Mm-hmm. in, you know, wherever X, you know, it's just, you just take it like work up to that. Like, you know, if you want to ask, you know, for, for their advice or whatever, or to actually meet in person, like let that be like something that you lead up to later. And then just assume that like, this is a person who gets a lot of, like, even if they don't, but just assume they're going to get a lot of these kinds of emails. So just try to like, you know, be respectful, be kind, you know, and be yourself too, you know, like let yourself show because, you know, your personality is going to be like what they're going to respond to it anyways. Like, don't try to be something that you think, you know, whatever, or true robot, just be, be natural and chill and relaxed. And, you know, they may get back to you. They may not, but either way, it's like a simple little nice email is, is, is probably the best way to go. But I don't know. What do you yeah. think, Eric? 
I do think that there's a certain kind of code and expectation depending also on what time you meet and what day of the week you meet. Mm. For example, you know, when my kids were really little, of course, like I was busy during the day. I couldn't. And so I found it was so hard to meet with people. I would say like, hey, can you meet like Thursday night? And whenever you meet up with somebody at night, it usually it can sometimes have like a it can sometimes come across, even if it's not your intention, maybe romantic. Hmm. So meeting during the day is far different than saying like, oh, let's get together for dinner. (laughs) Also, typically actors, writers, directors, all of them prefer to meet Monday through Friday during the day. And coffee is the way to go. Don't say lunch. coffee because or some you know tea whatever it happens to be a smoothie you know like even if you don't drink coffee but if you say lunch well that means we're going to be sitting down for a long time and a lot of people especially if they don't know you if you've never met before they don't want to commit to that much time coffee coffee can be five minutes and i sit down and oh this person's weird oh i gotta go all right bye and then they can get out very quickly so it's usually coffee monday through friday weekends are a little bit tough just because anybody really values their weekends some people are pretty cool and they're like oh listen i understand like you know if you give some sort of stipulation i i work monday through friday so i can only meet this weekend i take care of children monday through friday so i can only meet this weekend then they can be kind of cool with that uh, it's usually a little bit tougher and also make sure naturally you're not doing it around a holiday or something and also i would say you have to have extra kid gloves if you are a man and you are approaching especially a young woman yeah I've talked on the on the podcast before about I run a thing called the Night of Shorts Night, which is a short film showcase. And there, when we first started doing it, I would reach out to I. I, I there was a, a ton of dudes. There was so many dudes who were showing their things, and I, I wanted to show. I wanted to give women an opportunity. And there were so many women that I reached out to and was like, hey, I would love to show your short. Do you want to you know, meet up sometime? And that immediately came across. I didn't realize it at the time. It came across as creepy. Like I was some random dude from the Internet that was hitting on them. And mm-hmm. women who are on the Internet, especially young women, get hit on all the time. So you have to make sure if you are a guy writing to a woman, you are being very, very conscious of the fact that like, no, this is a professional thing. I'm not putting any sort of fun terminology in like uh hey would love to get together like i think it'd be a good old time or like nothing like that just very cold and very stark and very professional i think when it comes to women uh as a dude yeah but yeah those are kind of that's kind of my two cents is i would say coffee monday through friday if you can and it might take a couple of emails i would also say you know if you reach out to somebody you don't hear anything wait two weeks if you still don't hear anything wait another two weeks and it's fine to pester somebody, but you do have to write a line between are you annoying them or are you reaching out to them? Yeah. And so and that is one that I, I think you, you kind of have to use your best judgment because this person just might be very introverted. If you're dealing with a writer, a lot of writers are introverted. And so they have a hard time getting together and kind of hanging out. Actors, no problem. The actors will meet you and then they will talk for two and a half hours and then be like, oh, that's right. You're here, too. And then directors are usually you know pretty chatty as well. But you just have to you have to treat somebody with respect. You have to let them know up front. This is for business. This is not a romantic thing. And then you hopefully, as you said, have some sort of call to action. There's something that you guys want to talk about. You have some sort of plan in place because these people want to know that they're just not wasting their time. Yeah. I double down on that. And yeah, very especially the the man and woman thing. Like you have to be very, very careful. 
because yeah, things can be taken the wrong way very easy. That's actually happened to me before where it was like completely innocent, just wanted to, you know, meet this actor and discuss like a potential role for a movie that I was making. And it came off the complete wrong way, you know, yep. and they got very freaked out and I was like, it felt very bad, but yeah. I was like, Oh, yeah. I, but I, but I mean, I don't even know like what I did, but I, maybe I, I must've did something. <laughs> I must've said it in the wrong way. But anyways, I think it's very, very good to be aware of all these things. And I, I think coffee is always the way to go for sure. Like I've only had lunch with people who like I've met before, you know, either like th- through many, many emails or who have been on the show or whatever. Like I have some kind of connection to them. Like I never had lunch with a complete first time person, uh, you know, just cold emailing. I, I don't think maybe, but but very definitely not often if, if that yeah. if that is the case. But yeah, let us know what you think. Oh, wait, I got I got one more. One I will more. say okay. this as well. This is little like because getting a hold of that person, I think yeah, if you if you were to just like you just looked them up like on IMDb and it had like their email and you just emailed them. That's kind of tough. If you live in a city that happens to have like a, a film festival or something like that and you meet them like you just go and like, oh, I saw your short or I saw your feature. I really liked it. And then you just say, can I reach out to you on Instagram or can I reach out to you on social media? And like, maybe we'll get together for a cup of coffee sometime. People are one people who are even like really high up in the industry are usually willing to come out if you don't have anything, you know, if you are very inexperienced, they're still usually willing to come out to give some sort of Mm. advice or something like that. People tend to be pretty cool in our industry. But if you meet them face to face, it's usually a little bit easier than if they just open up a, a, a faceless email. True. For sure. Absolutely. Well, Eric, t- take us away, sir. What do you guys think about this? You can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We haven't had one for a while. So be be cool. Send us a, a review on iTunes. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at MMIH Podcast, and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. It's an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of the best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Jason Lupin for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Brymood, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert California Jones for heading up all of our social media. And thanks to our hosts, Liz and Ulrich, for being rad. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. writer and filmmaker whose first feature film Bakersfield Noir will be released I'm going to start over (laughs) 